Hi, I'm Shelly Johnson. I'm the director of photography on Greyhound, and you're listening to the Go Creative Show. Hey, everyone. My name is Ben Consoli. I'm a director and owner of BC Media Productions. And this is the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. So today we're talking with Shelley Johnson, ASC. He's the director of photography for Greyhound, the new Tom Hanks movie on Apple TV+. And we cover a lot of things on this episode. You guys are going to love this one because the movie takes place in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. So, you know, there's a lot of conversations about sort of how you recreate the movement of the ship and the lighting that's out there or lack of lighting, I should say, out in the middle of the ocean. Um, and we also have a discussion about something he sort of terms as camera performance, which I've never really heard camera movement being used in that term. But when you understand his explanation and how he thinks about camera performance, you'll be really fascinated. It's something we've never talked about on the show. And also how they didn't use green screen in the film. They used white screen, something I've never heard of before. So lots of really new things on this episode that... uh I know you guys are going to absolutely love. And of course, his experience working with Tom Hanks, he has a couple of funny stories in there too. So it's an episode you guys are going to really enjoy and I'm excited to share it. And it's coming up in just a couple of minutes. But a couple of things I want to mention. Um, we have some offers from just friends of the show. These aren't really sponsors of the show per se, but they're offering things to our audience. Open Reel is a remote production platform that I've been using with my company, BC Media Productions. And uh, it allows you to film people through iPhones, control the camera, upload the files. It's, it's an amazing platform. And you can get 10% off by just using my name, Ben Consoli, or Go Creative Show. So check it out for yourself at openreel.com. And also Soundstripe, which is giving our audience, you guys, 15% off. So if you're looking for royalty-free music for your productions, Soundstripe is a great place to go. I use it all the time and it has really great music. And um, you can get a subscription there at gocreativeshow.com forward slash soundstripe and use the code gocreativeshow for 15% off. So some offers for our audience and for us here at Go Creative Show. So thank you, Soundstripe and OpenReel for uh, offering some cool stuff for us. Now, I want to uh, encourage you guys to follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, YouTube. We have all sorts of content on all of those channels, and um, we also give you an opportunity to have your questions asked on the show. So follow us there. Subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. And please support our sponsors, MZ, Education for Creatives, and Post Lab, collaboration in Final Cut Pro and Premiere. All right, let's jump into our interview with Shelly Johnson, ACS, the director of photography for the new Tom Hanks film on Apple TV Plus, Greyhound. So I'm here with Shelly Johnson, ASC, the director of photography for the new Apple TV Plus movie, Greyhound. Shelly, welcome to the Go Creative Show. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm happy to be here. I didn't even know Apple TV Plus was doing movies until Greyhound came around. Is this their first? <laughs> is this their first feature film? I think so. I think they they took the the COVID atmosphere and and sort of created a place for all these movies that were languishing in empty theaters and and because uh, we were we were all lined up for a real nice June 12th release 
theatrical release. And of course, you know, along comes the, uh, you know, mid-March and <laughs> just like, and, and so all of our, all these movies kind of went by the wayside and, you know, one by one, you've seen movies kind of pop up on Netflix and Amazon and, and um, Apple, I think is wanting to, wanting to get into more of these types of movies, yeah. uh, uh, you know, acquire these, these more feature, uh, you know, big star type of movies. This was a perfect, I think, starting point for them. The movie was done. It was ready. Um, uh, the only thing about it is it's, it's very much shot for the big screen, mm. um, you know, which hopefully will, will translate from what I can see. It translates pretty well to, uh, to, uh, well, the biggest screen you could possibly get at home, I guess <laughs> the bigger, the better. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but I, you know, quite frankly, I think they were, Kind of a savior for us because when you think about um what could be happening where we could be coming out next year during the glut of all the other films that are coming out next year that didn't come out this year or or coming out as early as possible to a bunch of empty theaters and just watching it you know not do not perform very well i think this is a good a good way to get you know what i feel is a good movie in front of people so i'm i'm all for it when it, when it all came down that this was going to be the thing we were kind of halfway through our DI when we got the news. So we had to kind of shift gears because it's a little different workflow to finish for Apple than it is to finish for a theatrical. And what's uh, the difference? Well, uh, uh, Apple uses the Dolby Vision HDR uh, master. Hmm. And we were mastering in P3, which is the theatrical uh, color space you use. And then we make our, our home versions uh, uh, from our P3 master. We ended up uh, shifting gears uh, to, uh, to do the Dolby vision, uh, master since, uh, that all has to be translated to something that the TV can, can, uh, uh, either create a 709 color space or rec 2020 color space, depending how your TV is set up. It's, it's, a, it's a little different thing. Um, and we went around a couple of times with the movie to kind of get it down to theatrical levels. Um, you know, when Gary Getzman and everyone at Playtone saw the movie, they were more interested in keeping it theatrical looking because the movie is a, it's a stormy, you know, very kind of salt sprayed kind of look. Yeah. And um, so we didn't want it to get too electronic. So a lot of our function with that change in, in what we were doing was, was creating what we had, uh, the look that we had created in P3 and, and, and letting that, you know, kind of, translate to this apple color space where we are now so it's the as sound wise i think it's amazing i think they you know it's a pretty good it's a pretty good uh you know platform that they have there i'm pretty impressed with it, with apple so the film is a world war ii film it stars tom hanks i mean upper we're talking about upper echelon of stardom here um it's a big uh, film sort of made for the big screen but just because of our times is now forced on TVs, tablets, iPhones. So if you knew that you were going to be releasing this through Apple TV Plus, would you have changed anything during production? You know, probably not. Um, you know, I might have changed the camera choice a little bit. We, we shot in full 8K, um, large format. Um, you know, I might have entertained the idea of, of, uh, of going with... Um, you know, an Alexa, we use the DXL uh, in 8K because we were going for the big screen and we wanted um, as little distortion as possible on the faces. We wanted the, the optics of that large format shooting. 
and um, it's a spherical uh, format that favors faces because of its you know longer focal lengths. Um, we were very limited with our camera choice. Uh, it was before the Alexa LF came out, and so we went with the DXL. And I think that had we known we were going to Apple TV, I wouldn't have had a problem just shooting with a you know Alexa Mini, yeah, and and doing it that way. Um, I think we would have gotten some pretty good results and it might've been a little easier, but, but, um, but not really in terms of the shooting style and the storytelling, um, you know, Tom had a very specific goal about this. He, he wrote the screenplay or adapted it from a, a CS, uh, uh, Forrester book, uh, called the good shepherd. And, uh, he was interested in, uh, doing a film that put the audience in a very specific position. Uh, he really wanted to study uh, the physiological strength of involved in the procedures and behaviors connected with how difficult it was to stay alive in the middle of the Atlantic in 1942. And um, so he's done a lot of films that are character studies, um, uh, especially in the World War II genre. And this one, he wanted to make a lot more procedural. Uh, his his goal was to put the audience in the pilot house of that destroyer and uh, to, uh, to to kind of make them ask the question, what would I do if I were in these same circumstances? You know, would I crack under the pressure? Um, so for Aaron Schneider, the director, and I, I mean, I think that that we were always trying to answer the question for the audience, you know, how does one deal with uh, a pressure that never lets up? Uh, when you, especially when you have no idea if what you're doing is right. Um, the, the time that they're in the Black Pit, which is the area of the Atlantic that is between air cover on the, on the east coast of the United States and air cover on the west coast of the, of the uh, UK, they're out of reach of any kind of help. And that's where most of the U-boats were doing their hunting. And, and so obviously to get all the soldiers and equipment over to Europe, it all had to happen by ship in the 40s. And, and the, the ships weren't really all that advanced. Um, so uh, Aaron and I discussed the idea of, of more or less kind of teaching the audience through this procedural dialogue and this, you know, procedural storytelling, how the ship functioned, how the crew functioned. It was much less of a character study as it was a study of people composed uh, in an experience and people composed in a world and a space. Um, and how do they function under this enormous amount of pressure? Um, mm. Yeah, that, so th those were at least the storytelling goals. Um, you know, I remember we had a conversation early with Tom during prep and, and he said something very interesting, which was, uh, he said, uh, um, people, uh, essentially have three days to affect their place in the world. They have yesterday, today, and tomorrow. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, to me, it's no coincidence um, that the main character and his crew are, are working toward a common goal of survival in a story that takes place over a three-day period <laughs> um, where that sort of simple truth can play out. So, I mean, the thematic goals were, were rather simple in that way. We weren't looking for a complex character study or an interlacing of, of all these personalities or wanting to know their backstories. It was much more giving a place for the audience to stand in the middle of this, uh, 
uh, you know, kind of warscape, you know, and, and so uh, the movie is important that once the movie starts, it maintain a pace, it maintain a, a very authentic uh, procedural nature. We give the audience enough context and enough uh, situational awareness to appreciate what the crew is going through. And hopefully when they get to the end of the journey, <laughs> they're as exhausted <laughs> as, as, the, uh, as the ship's crew. If they aren't exhausted, they're at least entertained, you know. Um, but th- those were the storytelling goals going in, which is very different uh, than most movies. And, and I, was, I was very intrigued by this. And uh, for Tom Hanks, it was, he was looking at it as more or less an experiment. And for him, it was sort of like the missing link of all the World War II movies he's done. He hadn't seen this before. And, you know, because the Atlantic theater is, is there's little that's really written about it or known about it. Um, it was a very treacherous and dangerous place. Um, it was cold. It was wet. Um, it was dreary um, and extremely dangerous. And uh, there was incredible loss of life there. And, and um, so that's, that's what he, that's the story that he wanted to tell was, was that procedural and and uh, uh, experiential type of story, authentic story? Yeah. yeah. Well, I I want to talk about first of all your involvement in working on this project. I mean, it, how did you first? You know how did how did you first get involved in the project? Were you approached directly from production, or did you have to pitch yourself against other DPs, or how did it work? Yeah, as far as I know, I was pitching myself. Um, Aaron Schneider. Uh, gave me a, a call and that wanted me to come in for it. He didn't just straight up offer it to me. He wanted me to interview for it. So he must've been looking at other people. The, the, this project had been in the wind for years. Mm. So I wouldn't be surprised to learn if there were even other DPs involved with it in early iterations of what it really? was that ended up getting you know not produced. How um, long were you hearing about it before it happened? Um, well, I didn't know about the project myself before that, but I learned about its pedigree after I was on it, how long it had been around. Because Tom had written a thing 10 years ago, and his wow. first his first idea was to get it done as a feature. And it didn't really price out to a studio. It, did, it wasn't something that they, a studio was going to do. It was too expensive. And so he looked into uh, getting it done as like an HBO type of uh, limited series, uh, like The Pacific or Band of Brothers, something like that. And yeah. And it didn't price out there either. It was still kind of too expensive. These ocean-going movies are, are just expensive little mothers. And, and uh, um, so he decided, I'm going to go independent. If I can find the right director um, who can figure out how to do it, then, then I'll do that. And along came Aaron Schneider, and, and, and Aaron kind of pitched this idea. He figured out the movement of the ship and how we can kind of create that movement with the camera and with uh, motion maps that he personally could design based on, you know, ocean movement and how a destroyer moves through the ocean and, and, and hopefully put our, put our ships on ocean plates. Um, so he, that's how Aaron got involved. I knew Aaron uh, from the ASC because Aaron is a former cinematographer and, and oh, wow. in fact, quite a good one. Um, and I, one that I really admired. And so um, I, we had met at the ASC and talked. We definitely knew who each other was. You know, we were on each other's radar, but never really had much of a social life. I mean, in, in the 15 years, he maybe talked for an hour. You know, various events, and he would come to his screening, and he would say something nice or something. And I, I, and I always valued 
my conversations with Aaron. He's a very smart guy. He's kind of like a mad scientist, genius type. And um, so when he called, I was very interested and in, 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 in kind of tickled and and uh, um, about doing it. Of course, you hear World War II, Tom Hanks, it's, you know, yeah, I, I was going to say yes before I even read the thing. I, I didn't really <laughs> yeah. care. You had me at Tom Hanks. You had me at <laughs> Yeah, and Aaron. And so he came in, and it was so funny because Aaron said two things to me in the interview. I came in with a, you know, a lookbook and kind of a way to, to, to shoot the thing. You know, I read the script, and, and interestingly, because the script, you know, is written very procedurally as well. The dialogue in the script is composed of rudder commands and firing trajectories and distances. And there's not a lot of small talk. (laughs) You honestly, like you need time when you first turn it on to like adjust your brain to the dialogue. Yeah. To this world where you are, you're in the middle of it. Yeah. And so the story I, I deduced from reading it. Okay. The story is in the white part of the script. You know, it's, it's, it's all the reactions that occur before and after the line. You know, because if he's if he's going to shout out a command, he's going to shout it out authoritatively and with confidence. But we want to be able to see in his eyes. Was that the right thing? (laughs) Is that command indeed the right thing to do? Um, So I have, you know, as a reader, you have your own interpretation of what's happening. Um, And of course, you don't really know entirely what's happening until you see the actors. do it. You know, there's a whole new reinterpretation. Yeah. But, you know, when you're in an interview situation, you come in with your own interpretation. And, and so that's what I had. And, and um, um, I, I was uh, very interested in doing the movie handheld, uh, putting the camera right in the middle of the action um, and make, you know, putting the audience on that deck on the ocean next to Captain Krause. You know, that, that well, was... well, yeah, I mean, let's talk about that because I think you, you're tasked with making people feel like they are there in the moment. So right. how, like, how do you do that from a cinematography standpoint when you don't really have a lot of sets? I mean, you know, right. the whole thing takes place in the ship for the most part. Right. And you need to, I mean, I, I imagine there's a bunch of challenges. The things when I was watching it that I'm thinking to myself is I'm like, okay, what are the biggest challenges that I saw as a viewer and I'm thinking to myself, okay, you need to have a sense of claustrophobia. You need to know kind of where you are in the ship. You also need to understand that you're sort of nowhere at the same time because you're in the middle of the ocean. Yeah. So you're you're really playing with scope, scale, and perspective throughout the whole piece. Mm-hmm. And um, that to me sounds like it would be an incredible challenge as a cinematographer to create all of those feelings. But I'd love to hear from you. How did you create this world where we have to be in the seat of this captain? Yeah. And there's also kind of that element, those things that you mentioned, I think a huge element for me was also the vulnerability aspect of it. Yes. You consider they're out in the middle of the ocean, they're floating on the, (laughs) there's no, there's no cover. Um, So you're left to your wits. You have to find them before they find you essentially. And, um, and when, and then uh, once they find a U-boat, there are certain things the U-boat could do well, there are certain things that a destroyer could do well, and vice versa. You know, they each have their weaknesses also. So, you know, part of my discussions with Aaron was uh, teaching the audience how these machines function, the scale of where they are in this open space, 
They're escorting 37 ships, and so there's a, a constantly changing landscape of where they are in relation to the ships because the destroyers, the escort destroyers, are circling all around the convoy at any given time. They're never in one place. They're always looking for the hot spots, you know, yeah. and where the trouble is and, and, and lining up their defense. Um, so they're constantly on the move, and so that was also a big part of it was, was giving the audience um, an awareness of where they were at any given time. But in terms of the experiential part of it, um, the handheld camera, the two, the two components for me that were most important were the handheld uh, active camera where the camera was performing. You know, so camera performance was, was paramount to me. And also natural lighting. You know, the last thing we wanted to do was come in this thing with a Hollywood lighting job because we were going to be doing a lot of this on stage. You know, that all of it is shot on stage except for five days where we went out onto a um, museum ship, a, a restored destroyer that's kind of moored out in the Mississippi River. And, but the rest is on stage. So uh, because it took place over a three-day period, um, I had pitched to Aaron the idea of these different times of day. Um, Tom structured the script in an interesting way. Um, every four hours, uh, there's a the beginning of a new watch, which means that... Um, uh, there's a whole new crew that comes into the to the pilot house, and the one the one element that stays the same is the captain. He never left in the three days. He never goes down to his to his captain's quarters. He doesn't eat. He doesn't even sit down. He's he's very involved with this intense three day period. He doesn't leave, but the but the crew around him continually changes, and the communication between them is a big part of it. And so one of the things that that Aaron asked me to do was to learn as much as I could about the procedures. How does a destroyer work? How does sonar work? What happens when they find um, a sonar uh, target? How do they plot an engagement? You know, and how do they attack it? Um, how do they defend against it? You know, what is their strategy? And, and what is the, how does all that happen in a ship? What is the chain of communication that happens, it starts in the bridge or the lookout to the captain, down to the, the combat uh, information center, back up to the bridge, and then back to commands to, to, to uh, direct the ship and fire and, and do all that. And, and, um, and there's constant, uh, for them, there was constant uh, uh, fear of kind of running out of their ammunition, running out of depth charges. They have to monitor their fuel. There's so no. much going on. Um, so having all of that happen at once was was big. So you're talking about um, layers and layers and layers <laughs> of information. Um, and what it came down to was um, these rehearsal periods because we couldn't we could only interpret what we could interpret as a reader until we saw the entire crew there and we did our rehearsals with everybody. And then, you know, so that pilot house might have 14 people in it. So all 14 people, whether they had lines or not, were there. And because the communication, the looks, the reactions, you know, what happens when Krauss had to go, you know, in one door, through the pilot house, out the other, he had to kind of, you know, wiggle his way through eight people to do that, you know, because they're all wearing their K-pop vests and their helmets and stuff. Yeah. And, and um, uh, so we needed to see what those obstacles were. And we wanted the camera to experience those same obstacles. Those obstacles. So I had two extremely good, uh, venerable operators, Don Devine and George Billinger, who 
who carried this movie on their backs, quite literally. And, and they figured out the camera performance. I could say very few words to them and then they could go. And it was a type of thing where every take was a little different. You know, Aaron and I would, would watch the monitor and we'd see something happen. And so much of the telling of that story had to deal with reacting to what we were seeing right now. Um, there were certain things we could, we could plan for, and I got that out of the way. So the lighting presets, things like that. I got as much out of the way as I could so I could clear my head because I knew this whole story was going to be about reacting to what was happening in front of us. So I needed to have the full bandwidth of my brain focused on what was happening in front of us. Yeah. Um, and, and all of us would see different things. You know, when, when we did rehearsals, you know, Aaron would stand on one side of the room and I'd stand on the opposite side of the room just so we could get a view of what was happening. Yeah. And typically when you see a DP and a director do that, that's, that's normally not a good sign. <laughs> You know, that's the, that's sort of a sign of a disconnect. What's wrong with these guys? Technically, they won't stand next to each other. Yeah, but it's like no, that wasn't the reason we did it at all. It was because we wanted to see well, what did you see over there? Well, I saw this. What did you see over here? Well, I saw this. And and Aaron was remarkable. Where he, you know, he could only articulate so much on his own in our discussions during prep. But after the rehearsal, he could articulate a lot. He put together a whole narrative based on reactions and those silent moments yeah. that he said, here are the moments we need to go for, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, whatever they are. And, and suddenly we, then we had a focus. So now I could adjust my lighting to help accentuate those reactions. I could get the light, the light in the eye where we needed it. I could get the camera where we needed it. And, yeah. and, and um, um, we wanted things to be very fluid and very adjustable. And I told Aaron, there's, there's nothing we can't do. If you, if you want us to you know, start in the pilot house, go out one door, back, back inside, out the other door into the front of the ship, we'll do it. You know, if it's right for the audience and right for the shot, don't worry about how difficult it is. I'll figure out a way to do it. It's more important that we get the energy of the camera going you know, for the audience's sake because we want, we want them running alongside the captain to see what's going to happen next. And, and to me, that's, that's a huge component in the success of the script and, and, or the success of the movie, I hope. And, and um, I think that uh, uh, the camera performance in this is equally as important as the actors. Yeah. Well, there was a couple things in there that I want to dive into and I want to just isolate the decision for handheld. Did that come, first of all, what does that translate to for the audience? And also when did that decision get made? Was it during the rehearsals or was it something you knew right away that you wanted to do? Well, that's really funny because well, I, I was in my mind, I was thinking I might want to do this with maybe some kind of little gimbal or something just to smooth yeah. it out. Um, the problem is that we were going to be on a, on, on a, a, a different type of gimbal. We were going to be on our, our uh, a base. The set was on a, a base that, that pitched and yawed and, and did it and rolled and did everything. So we were, we were simulating the movement of the ship. Uh, on a gimbal on set. So the set was 14 feet above the stage floor and we were kind of hovering there in the middle of the stage and shooting our movie and, and uh, we were surrounded by our, by our screens and, and we did it all with white screen. So I had all reflective light and all the colors that could come in were coming in from a very natural angle. And, and uh, um, so the, uh, by doing it handheld, I could see still the movement of the gimbal where mm. even a Steadicam starts to kind of equalize that out. 
and you start to kind of deaden that, which is like the opposite of what you want. You want, if anything, yeah, yeah. you want to accentuate, you know? So even the times when George Billinger, who's a very good steady cam operator, I was telling him, Hey, really hold on to that thing. So if we, if we <laughs> no light touch, we might actually want to see your movement, you know? So, but if we were doing like a long lateral move, sometimes that's really difficult to do handheld on your shoulder. Yeah. Easier for him to do on a steady cam, but I really had him dirty it up. You know, it's, it's, it went against everything that he, that he was trained to do. But he was you so must have been like, are you sure? Are yeah, you yeah. sure? you? Are <laughs> yeah, it, it, he did give me a look, but it was like, once he, you know, once he understood and saw the playback and all that, he's like, okay, yes, yes, yes. And, the, and these guys were so good at, at uh, really figuring out the movement because there were certain sets that were not on the gimbal where they had to sort of create the movement themselves. And um, we each, we shot simultaneously one scene that was on the uh, gimbal and another scene that was on a stationary set on the stage floor and both images on two monitors side by side. And they're both perfect, perfectly wow. matched. These two guys just figured it out. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing to watch. And I think if from a technical standpoint, um, you know, watch this movie for, if you want an example of what a good camera operator can do. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Now, just to clarify for the audience and, and for me, we brought up the term gimbal a few times. I think the natural thought is going to be camera gimbal. Yeah. So, and and I believe you're talking about the actual ship on set uh, on a base. gimbal. To, okay. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Talk to me about the way that you uh, mimicked that rocking ship on set. Well, interestingly, uh, it all came from a motion file. Um, when Aaron was in prep, and remember, he came on the film because he had this idea that he could create the motion. Yeah. Um, he really analyzed. He went into Maya and taught himself how to use Maya because wow. he's a he's a mad genius, and and um, and and gave me kind of the formula of <laughs> what it is. He said, Shelley, if they're in six foot seas, and the destroyer's here, and the camera boat is here, the destroyer could be doing this, the camera boat could be doing that. He said, in his motion. He said, we could have as much as 30 or 40 foot differentiations in, in height on six second cycles. <laughs> wow. So when it came, which is enormous. And so when it came time to do our work, let's say on the, the museum ship out there, we had a 75 foot tender crane on a barge. And so and we were doing 30 and 40 foot drops and, and rises on a six second cycle, which was on a 75 foot arm. You can just imagine what that's like. for the Oh my the, God. <laughs> it was it was it was it was mind-blowing to see how much move but you needed that much movement in order to to see it um and i kind of have a funny theory which is you know you almost need twice as much of everything to see it in in in, in movies you need twice yeah. as much rain twice as much, but, and, and i in my dinosaur brain i can i think well it's 180 degree shutter half the time the your eye is closed. <laughs> so you need twice as much for it. So there you go. The full effect of what it is. So it turns out, yeah, it, it actually seemed like we were doing, when you saw it, that crane moving, it seemed like, oh man, we're doing twice as much as we need. And you look at it on the monitor, it's like, nope. Exactly do you have any, do you have any photos or videos that you can share with us of? Yeah. I oh, I, I would love some, to have that and share that with stuff. the audience. That'd be yeah, so cool to sure. see. Yeah. All right. So I just want to make sure I'm like trying to visualize as, as visualize it as we go. So when you're doing the exteriors, you've got the ship itself moving around. You've got a camera platform, I'm assuming, moving around so that you can mimic that, you know, 40 or whatever you said foot, right. you know, different uh, difference for yes. every six seconds. 
So you're you're like constantly in a in a state of motion. Like, did, did anybody get sick? Did anybody get motion sick on set? You know, not that I know of. Um, <laughs> it was it was the, the gimbal kind of had its own. Uh, it was a treacherous, diabolical device, <laughs> and it had its own it had its own way of throwing our backs out because it, it got to moments when it got really rough. But but um, uh, in terms of the motion, um, you know, what was interesting is sort of like the same motion of flight. Where whenever I do a flying scene, everything needs to be unlocked. It's like the the roll, the pan, the tilt, you know, the ins and outs. Nothing can be locked. The minute you lock one axis, it looks mm. fake. Yep. So, which is part of the reason to go handheld. The minute yeah, I, I just wanted everything unlocked, and whenever we went on the crane, that I just we told the crane groups just keep it moving. It never stops. It's 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 always going to be breathing and doing something, and and. And never is anything going to be stationary, and and uh, uh, because that's kind of what helps create um, you know that overall experience. By the time you get to the end of the movie, you feel like you've gone on a journey. Yeah. And even on the quiet scenes, um, you know, it was uh, uh, when we're when we're down in his in his quarters at the beginning and end of the film, we're still handheld, we're still moving around, and 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 uh, it's it's not an action packed scene, but it's still we're. We're, we're providing, you know, that intangible, you know, that something the audience will feel more than they can see it, you know. I want to take a minute and talk about education, filmmaking education. MZ is where we all should be going to get the best filmmaking education out there on the market. It really is. Um, they have hundreds of hours a video-based filmmaking education that is perfect for us because it covers all sorts of topics like directing, cinematography, post-production, visual storytelling, and more. Like that's all the stuff that we need to know. And you can get it at gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ, M-Z-E-D. Now they have new courses all the time and some of their newest ones are a course in Da Vinci Resolve and a course all about the film Deadfall, which was shot by Shane Hurlbut and taught by Shane Hurlbut. Because what he does is he basically will recreate a whole bunch of scenes from the film, but do it in an indie budget. So that's exactly what we here at Go Creative Show need to know. And that's just one of a million courses over there at MZ. Um, now, it's not just about the education you get. It's also about the instructors, right? You need both. You need good content and you need good instructor, uh, instructors. And at MZ, you get it both. I'm talking about Vincent LaFerre, Shane Herbert, like we just talked about. Philip Bloom is an educator on MZ. And the ARI Academy is there too. So great content, information that we all should know, taught by high quality educators. Like this is something you need to experience for yourself. So check it out at gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ. I'm having a trouble saying slash. gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ. And check it out for yourself. Yes, you can buy individual courses, but I strongly encourage that you become an MZ Pro member so that you have access to everything. Check it out for yourself. GoCreativeShow.com forward slash MZ. So now you said you were using the Panavision, um, uh, 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 what was it called? The XL um, for this. Now, what were you pairing with it for lenses? Okay, my lens choice, what I really wanted to use were the Sphero 65 lenses. 
It's an Why? old, old set of lenses. They're just beautiful. And since Dunkirk came out, everyone's been using those lenses. <laughs> and so they're, and so they're, they're difficult to get. And mm-hmm. so I have my contacts at Panavision, and usually when I do a movie, I, I tell everybody, all the sales reps know that I'm looking for these lenses. And I have one main rep that I'd use in, in Woodland Hills uh, named Dave Dotson, and then we had uh, James Finn, who was helping us, and he has the whole kind of southern section of the country that he does. They were both looking for these lenses. And it was kind of touch and go. It, it, we, we got about a week out and it wasn't, we weren't guaranteed that we were even going to get them. So we're Oof. in camera prep and we don't have our set of lenses yet. And we ended up, David found some lenses, a set. He Frankenstein a set together, sent these things over. And I mean, half of them weren't even anodized. They were, they were, they were wow. getting old. And, and um, um, I didn't really have a chance to test them. I mean, you can test them. You can put them on a lens chart and all that, and that, that tells you a certain amount. But for a DP, what really matters is when you get them into your lighting situation and how do they take your light and how's the contrast and how do they bloom and how do you know, what does it do with a, with a barrel light bulb and all that. Um, I didn't see that till day one of shooting. <laughs> so, so are I, you I def- serious? I am. Yeah, I'm totally serious. I believed. Wow. I believed in these lenses so much that I decided, okay, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go all in on this. And if I do it untested, it's, you know, it'd go big or go home, I guess. So did you so, find any variations between them that were like oh, really wildly, hard to deal with? Yeah. I mean, different. Yeah. Uh, with any kind of older lens, you see big contrast variations, sharpness variations, they shift in color, they shift everywhere. And you see that when you're doing, when you're grading dailies, you know, so you're in the, you're, <laughs> you're doing dailies and, and, uh, Okay, there's our 50. Yep, it's blue. Okay, there's our 40. Yep, it's <laughs> it's a little wow. softer and a little, you know, lower contrast. So you kind of have your your trims that you do for whatever those lenses are, and you make sure the colorist knows which lens is up there because he gets to know them too. And um, and it's shooting that format, that large uh, format, the VistaVision format, um, it's sort of like anamorphic. For me, it's a prime lens format, and you end up using very few lenses, or at least I do. Usually when I shoot anamorphic or or large format, my lens choices become, I end up shooting the movie with like three lenses, it seems, every time, just because you gravitate toward what works. And and uh, and I'm guessing it, being handheld, you probably weren't yeah. very telephoto either. Yeah, I mean, we, we had to be at, at times when we were, we could really create some movement if we ever, ever went back from the ship. We could really exploit that movement. With yeah, that's lens, true, yeah. You know? uh, so we did that occasionally, but you're right about, 90% of the time we're two or three feet from the actor. Yeah. What were your focal lengths that you were playing with? You, you, you mentioned just a minute ago, you usually end up sticking within a range of maybe yeah. two or three lenses. Yeah. We had a, a 35 and a 40 that we probably shot 75% of the movie on. Yeah. Um, occasionally the 50, rarely the 75, almost never the 100. Uh, we had a 20, what is it? A 20, 24, I think it is. Um, that we put on a couple times and I didn't, I didn't like what it did. Um, we were trying to see if we could get in close to Tom and, and kind of break that, that barrier of space to get right into it. And it, it, it sort of had side effects that were distracting. So hmm. I did that for one scene and decided that I, I'm not getting the returns I want on that lens. I'm, I'm much better off uh, getting to that intimate moment in another way that doesn't involve distracting optics, you know? Yeah. Um, so what, you know, what we thought might work didn't work as well. It worked for the moment that we, where we did, but it's not something we repeated very often. Um, 
How many cameras did you have on set? We had two uh, all the time. And or one and a half cameras, as I like to say, because about half the setup, you end up shooting one camera because yeah. It's, yeah, if the camera's going through and it's seeing everything, well, what are you going to put the other camera? <laughs> yeah. The set was so small. Um, but there were lots of times where we did use two. And when we got into the battle scenes, uh, you know, we would get into four cameras. We had a very good uh, second unit, um, uh, an MC Quayle, who's a friend of Aaron's, who did a wonderful job, second unit, doing a lot of the stuff on that. Um, you know, they've been loading the guns and firing the, the uh, depth charges and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, just fantastic. And, and uh, so we, we, we did have some help. And, and I think what was really nice about this movie is the entire crew, everyone really wanted to be there. It, it, it was not the most expensive movie. We shot it fairly quickly. We shot it in 35 days. So wow. this wasn't, it was not like we were there for 12 weeks or 14 weeks, we were, you know, we were there for seven weeks, you know, and, and um, so we had to we had to shoot fast and uh, you know kind of make a commitment to what we saw and go, yeah. um, and uh, so that was the that's kind of how we did. It. We, we we it was a lot of it was instinctual, so knowing that going in, that's why we got a lot of our technical stuff done early because we had to be able to rely on our instincts and trust what we saw and go, you know, yeah. I want to dive a little bit deeper into lighting on Greyhound because a few, a few minutes ago earlier in our conversation, you had mentioned that natural lighting was really important to you for the realism of this. And that makes sense for exterior, but a lot of time you're inside and the windows are very small and your light sources are coming from like, you know, machines and, um, and certainly like lights within the ship too, but Talk to me about that. Why is it important to have natural lighting? And then also, how do you achieve that on a set like you yeah. had for Greyhound? Yeah. The, um, well, interestingly, when I first read the script, I thought, okay, pilot house of a ship. So it's going to be a big band of windows. This is going to be great. All kinds of windows all over it. They're going to be able to look out and, and uh, you know, I have all this light coming in. Oh, this is, this is going to be sensational. I'll be able to do anything I want. And um, until I looked up, what a Fletcher class destroyer pilot house looked like. And it's a, a pilot house on that ship. is essentially an armored box. It's a solid steel box with nine portals in it and two doors. And the mm-hmm. portals are this big, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, so there's not a lot of light coming. It's actually quite dark and there's a big differentiation between the exterior light and the interior. light. Um, so we were going to have our interior light that was going to exist in there. So lights are on even during the day because it's dark in those places. And um, the, the, for the whole movie, they're going to be sailing through storm conditions. Um, so we had, you know, various kind of like levels of weather they were going to be sailing through. And one thing that I did was I, I kind of broke the whole movie down and wrote up kind of what I refer to as the manifesto, <laughs> which is every scene I broke down the, the sea state, which is the height of the waves and the condition of the ocean, you know, the, the visibility of the horizon, the color of the water, uh, the amount of cloud cover, uh, was the horizon visible? And if so, what did it look like? What was the color of the ambient light? You know, what was the relationship of the exterior light versus the interior light? Was it a bright type of overcast? Was it a dark type of overcast? Was it raining? You know, and I did this for every scene. The colors, you know, how blue was dawn, how gray was dusk, how, you know, I would kind of assign values to all of these and, and, and more or less author 
I think the the final look of the movie because we were we didn't go to see, so everything we're doing is their foreground plates. You know, it's a lot of process that we're doing, and and so um, what would have been typically a green screen movie, um, we would have had our our deck, and we would have had to inter you know somehow interlace our backgrounds into that. So I, I at least was establishing what the background should look like, what the what was what was supposed to be in the background that was motivating the kind of light I was making on stage. That's mm. kind of the, what it added up to. Um, because we're on a gimbal, you know, we're, we're doing a lot of this side to side. So the windows are, you know, we're, we got, we're covering 40, 50 foot, you know, spans on our screen that's out there. So if that was a green screen, it would be a massive green screen, even though our windows were very small, they were, everything was moving. So yeah. if, if everything was green out there, all it would have done was reflect green light into the set and it rendered all that light unusable. And, and, um, and plus any light that I would have had to bring in from the outside, I'd have to bring in from unnatural angles because the light technically should be coming from where the green screen is because that's where the sure. background's going to go. Yeah. So I did it with white screen, which is a process that I did in Captain America. We had one set that was a, a suborbital bomber and it's a lar- very large in- airplane interior that had a giant window, kind of looking at the front of it, that over huge, that overlooked the other this, the sky, and all that light poured in that window and then reflected off of all of the the gubbins inside the the uh, the set. And so, obviously, the same thing. We hung green out there, it just would have turned the whole set green. <laughs> so we used white. So I pitched this white screen idea, and uh, VFX was all- was totally fine with it. They were great with it. And they were good with it. They were so good to the fact, to the point where they could key water droplets on the portal <laughs> wow. against a white background. They were, it was so good. And so now. So when, so you're saying white screen, I've never, I've never heard of this term. Um, yeah. <laughs> maybe some of our, maybe some in our audience have, but so you're, are you, you're just on a big white psych? We're on a, what they were, it's a big muslin. I have a picture of it that I'll send you. Okay. Um, so it's a, I, in kind of a big horseshoe shape, I surrounded our set with muslin, like a, whatever it was, like a 50 foot by 300 foot muslin, whatever it was. And um, in fact, I have a line diagram I can send you. Oh, please yeah. do. All of that yeah. stuff would be really fun to put yeah. in the show notes. Yeah. So we could, um, we could backlight through that, basically illuminate that. Okay. And let that be our sky. So now we're photographing the source. And we could make it the appropriate color. Just look up on the manifesto. What color should it be? You know, and, and program that all in. We, we lit it all with sky panels, which are color mixable and programmable. So um, I, I kind of wrote up a, a cue sheet based on my manifesto of our first swing at all of these scenes. So the programmer could program the whole movie in and at least have a representation of each scene. We would usually change it greatly once we got into the heat of it, but at least we had sure. the movie catalog in, in the uh, console before we even started shooting. We just did all the prep. So we had, we had the big horseshoe around, which was basically like our distance guide. Then we had uh, more grid cloths and things. It was the whole set was surrounded by white. That was our skylight. So I could make the skylight different color than the horizon. I could, you know, I could make a warm horizon or a cooler sky and I could, I could really mix it up. So the whole ship, or the whole set, covered in this white, yeah. you could blast through any color you needed to. Mm-hmm. So, you know, your skies are going to be a different color than the ocean, yeah. highs, lows, all this. Right. 
as the ship is moving, are you also like changing it? So like, like you said, when the ship tilts up and the portholes are looking at the sky, there's going to yeah. be a different color than yeah. when it's tipped down and it's facing yeah. the water. So were you programming those light changes in the sky panels? I didn't have to because the set was doing it. Um, oh, so you, okay. So you were already kind of making the horizon. Right. I could, I could differentiate those colors. So when the ship, you know, went down on the port side, it was looking at all the light, the color of the light, everything I had low. When it went up on wow. the port side, it was now looking at all the skylight I had up there, which was a different color. So you have this very natural kind of change in the light that relates to all of the movement on the ship and everyone you know, <laughs> swing. And as water's coming down and dripping from the ceiling, it's doing this and, you know, yeah. Um, and the lights changing and we didn't have any hard light until the very end. They're in storm conditions the entire time, which at first I think, okay, that's going to be boring. Just being kind of top soft conditions all through the whole movie. And, and I thought, okay, what I have to do is really mix up these times of day. You know, since, since Tom wrote the, the movie, you know, observing these different shifts that came in and out, um, every four hours, the time of day would change. So it would, it would go from late afternoon to dusk to night, which mm. they turn on their red lights. And they had a whole separate kind of deal for night. Uh, dawn, you know, very, we had some dawns that were very cyan and, and uh, another dawn is very gray. And so I would kind of help uh, tell the story of the journey by the color of the light and the time of day and how the mm. dawns would change. The came, came into different weather conditions and things like that. So I did change things up quite a bit, even in that somewhat limited lighting direction. I could change the contrast up if they were in a brighter area of the ocean. I could uh, uh, let those windows go a little hotter, let the inside go a little darker if they were, you know, things like that. Um, and it was good because when it came time to do the visual effects, all the marrying of all this stuff, uh, they brought in a new visual effects person to finish named Nathan McGinnis, who's wonderful. And he was having trouble understanding what we were doing to lighting. And so all I had to really do was give him the manifesto. <laughs> Say, well, here, here's yeah. what we did. Here's the plan. And he read it. Like, oh, I had no idea we could do all this. So, yeah, this is this was by design from the beginning. Here's how the horizon should look. Here's the color of the water. Here's the color of the sky. Wow. Here's the clarity. Here's, here's how much atmosphere is in the air. Here's how bright it is in relation to the interiors. And so he could, now he had a roadmap. You know, and nights was even another thing where he could, that opened up possibilities for him, our, our conception of what night would be. And, and uh, um, so that much of the planning done helped us, help free our brains to see <laughs> what was happening in front of us. Yeah. At least have the, the concept out there, you know. I want to talk to you guys about something really important for editors. And I know there's a lot of you out there. I'm an editor myself. Collaboration in Final Cut Pro and Premiere has, it's, it's a little bit bumpy sometimes, right? But it needs to be seamless. It has to be. Luckily, PostLab has created a tool that will allow you to have seamless, stress-free collaboration in both of those software platforms, Final Cut Pro and Premiere. And it does it in a couple of different ways. One, PostLab gives you incredible access. So it saves all your documents locally, but it also syncs all the changes with your entire team, wherever they are. So you're no longer like zipping up documents and sending it back and forth. You don't have to do that anymore. 
It also makes sure you have no broken files. Now, any of you guys that have tried to do collaboration and editing tools, you know that if two people are working on the same file at the same time, it is a disaster waiting to happen. And PostLab makes sure that it doesn't happen because when one person starts working on a project, it locks it from everybody else. Um, and you can also keep track of what everyone else is doing. So it's really the best of both worlds. And lastly, the next evolution of Time Machine. They call it Time Machine 2.0. And it's because with PostLab, you can browse the history of each library. You can jump back and forth between versions and find a particular edit quickly. And it opens exactly how you left it, down to the blinking playhead. Now, these are some of the reasons, just some of the reasons, why PostLab is exactly what you're looking for in collaboration for Final Cut Pro and Premiere. This is the tool you need to do it well and effectively. And you can get it for three months free at gocreativeshow.com forward slash postlab. This is a huge offer, and I hope you guys take advantage of it. gocreativeshow.com forward slash postlab. Change the way that you edit for the better with postlab. gocreativeshow.com forward slash postlab for three free months. Well, I want to talk about how you approach the nighttime scenes because... Yeah. Again, relying on natural light. And right. when there is none, what right. do you do? What do you do? So, okay, yeah. So I've always, I've always held that <laughs> the two most difficult lighting situations for a DP are, and I've done them both, night exterior desert <laughs> and night exterior ocean. Mm. You know, because they're just vast, flat landscapes that go to a horizon and unless you can light 26 miles of everything <laughs> to the point where, you know, it, there's going to be a point where your Hollywood lights run out. And the minute that happens, you're now looking very, very fake. You're now looking yep. artificially lit. And, and you can't light by the moon because there's a storm going on. Yeah, there's a storm so, going on. I can't, I can't establish moonlight. So I came up with a, with a fundamental plan. Oh, another, another interesting condition was... Aaron was very, very keen on keeping the distances appropriate. So in other words, if there's a ship that blows up that's two miles away, well, that's a dot on the horizon. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty small if you're looking at an explosion. And he said, how do you propose that we make an explosion look big when it's two miles away? We can't shoot it closer. I don't want to make it look like they're 600 yards away. I want to make it look like they're two miles away. And, and, um, so one of my fixes was, you know, well, at night, let's have them sail into atmosphere. Let's have them sail into spray so mm. that when it blows up, not only is it, is it lighting the actual explosion, but it's lighting the air around the explosion, mm. which is making that now look bigger. It's making it much more of it. It's an atmospheric event now That's instead smart. of just yeah. a dot on the, on the ocean. Which sort of opened the door to, okay, if there's atmosphere, if there's atmosphere out there, that now opens up the shadows. And now we can sort of see what the other people are seeing because we're, we're supposed to be able to see other ships and we're supposed to be able to see the horizon, which in, in the ocean doesn't really happen. You know, our, our visual effects crew went out on and shot some plates on the ocean and they came back with reports saying, you know, at night, it's ink black. Mm. It's black. And they were trying to get me to kind of agree to make our nights ink black. And I said, we, we just can't do that. There's way too much that needs to happen in frame. We mm. have to be able to see. You know, and, and yes, I know it's not real. I know that in, in, in 
you know, in, in all practice, it is inky black out there. But I said, here's how I'm looking at it is if we're at night and we're inside the pilot house, we have our red lights on, our eyes are opened up. You know, those lights have trained our eyes to fully open so that we, when we walk out on deck, we can see much more than we thought we could see. Yeah. You know, there's spray in the air. We can dig into those shadows. We can see the Connie Tower of a U-boat against a, a you know, uh, a gray sky. And we can see, you know, that horizon moving around and where we wouldn't if it was in black. We would just see, it would just look like we were on a, an underlit soundstage. It would, it would look terrible. So I thought it's more important that our nights be consistent, have a, uh, a, a very... Um, solid and and meaningful reason to be and go with that so you know in film there's things are logical because you say they are <laughs> you know, part of teaching the audience you know about things like sonar is also teaching them what is our what is our world and our world if it's going to be nice that we could see into the darkness world you know mm. It was not darkness was not a place to hide. It was a place to, to engage, you know. So you're using the lights from the ships, you're using fire explosions, but having atmosphere be the thing that kind of carries it and thickens it and makes it makes yeah. it bigger. Yeah, we had I had some ambience. So in my mind, okay, now with that as the rule, now I'm thinking, okay, the moonlight can be up there. And maybe it's not direct, but it could be backlighting those clouds. Sure. So when you look up at a lookout. You're looking at a part of the sky that has the moon behind the clouds. The clouds are 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 uh, illuminating, are illuminated by the moon, so they're yeah. silhouetted. They're not against a black sky. They're actually against a sky that's with some, some lit clouds from a moon you can't see. Yeah, uh, and 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 that same light is waking the water up. You know, so there's a little bit of reflection there. And then at night, also the first night they go out, there's they're firing off uh, these star shells, which are those uh, flares that kind of go up and hang from parachutes and so mm -hmm. they, and they kind of chatter. And so we had those going for us. There's uh, of course we could really exploit uh, the muzzle flashes of the big gun. We had a lot of interactive light muzzle flashes. We had tracers. We had all kinds of, uh, we had every kind of interactive light you can think of. That technique of Fire. using the ambience really opened the doors for you guys. It did. That's it, for smart. Me it did. Yeah. I wasn't, it wasn't immediately welcome. I mean, it all got approved it, right away. When I got the manifesto approved, it all was approved, but I don't think they knew what they were approving. Because the the the, uh, the visual effects people were right away. I, my, I think they were. They may have had plans on hiding in those shadows a little bit, you know, and, and maybe saving some money in those shadows. Yeah, and yeah, I was kind exactly. Of, I was kind of, uh, you know, <laughs> I was piercing the veil there. Did you so, raise the budget single handedly I by this have, idea? <laughs> I may have. But but that you know the script says, <laughs> yeah, we see that tanker. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. No, we don't see the tanker. <laughs> we see it. <laughs> so. I want to talk to you about the challenges of shooting in environments where there's water everywhere. Like there's water being splashed constantly, winds yeah. blowing. I mean, yes, you're on a set, but they're creating an environment that's really difficult to shoot in. So can you talk yeah. to us a little bit about how you dealt with that, and also how much of it really was there? A lot of it was there. It was very, very wet. Um, in fact, originally, we were going to um, shoot, I think, with uh, mostly kind of vapor. They were going through essentially heavy, like in Ireland, they call it a soft day, almost kind of sprinkling, uh, you know, thick, very, very thick air. 
um, wet air. And um, the Sunday before the Monday when we started, Aaron went over to this to the set with the with the special effects crew, and didn't necessarily dial that in. He dialed in full on rain. <laughs> and and uh, so we, we arrived Monday, and now it's going to be pretty much a rain movie. And so we there's a, a it was much wetter than we were planning on. So um, a lot of it we had to sort of improvise because that was all new to us. And, and uh, yeah. we were anticipating one thing and got something else. But it was there. And those, those actors are getting very, very, very wet. And the camera's getting wet, and, and which I thought was great. So our lenses were fogging up and we were getting droplets on them, which I think visual effects even did more of, um, which I was okay with. You know, and there was a couple of scenes where the, the lens would start to fog up very slowly during like a one minute exchange. And I was like, let it do that. It's, I'm okay with it. You know, I, I yeah. think back on that one shot on the Revenant when, when uh, Leonardo DiCaprio kind of leans in and exhales and his breath fogs the front element. Of the yes. <laughs> Which I thought, Oh my God, that's so great. And, and it was the opposite of, Oh my God, look, look, there's a camera next to Leonardo DiCaprio. And, and, you know, now I'm taken out of that moment. That, that's not the case at all. Yeah. Um, to me, it, it added, it said something about, uh, the environment. And if the camera can look like it's also desperate to make the shot, it's as desperate to make the shot as they are desperate to sink that U-boat. Um, then we might be saying something you know, for the audience. And, and, and uh, when you're dealing with actual water, it's, it, it almost really was desperate. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a really interesting way to phrase it. You want the camera you, and you've mentioned a couple of times, this seems like a theme for you, or at least in this film is you wanted the camera to be a, a, a real participant in the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The performance. I, I, I call it camera performance. It's it's um it's something we talk to the operators about. In fact, you when you mentioned when you're asking about the handheld thing, I didn't really fully answer that question because we had discussed using little handheld gimbals or steady cam or things. Sure. And, and the real reason we didn't was because it was so s small and tight. And one of the things I didn't want to do was start flying a lot of the set out. I wanted I wanted it to be kind of hard. So in my mind. I was thinking, this is just going to have to be handheld. You know, I didn't necessarily say that to the operators up front because I didn't want them to quit. You know, I didn't, I didn't want them to kind of just to, to, to think, oh, my God, I'm going to handhold this entire movie. You know, I might want to look for an easier movie to do than this one. You know? And uh, uh, even though I had, they wouldn't have. But it was, it was I was kind of, I, I didn't want to say it until I knew that was the solution. And, and once they saw the set, they kind of told it to me. They, they told me, it's like, well, what your plan here? Do all the handles? Yeah, that's pretty much it. You know, that's how we're going to, that's how we're going to do it. And, and I said, plus it'll, I want, I want you guys to, to change it up and I want you to really listen. And, and so our shooting went like this where, you know, we, we'd do a shot, you know, um, Aaron would come in and talk to the actors and I was telling them, eavesdrop on Aaron, listen to what he's telling them because he, that, those are the moments that we're going to need to get, you know? So if, 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 uh, if Aaron's talking to Tom about one thing or another, you know, then I can get that lens right where we want it. And even if I talk to Tom after the pack, go, hey, when you go for that, you know, you give me a slightest little head turn this way, I'll be able to see both eyes or whatever it is to get that yeah. moment on screen. Um, you know, which he was totally open to do. He, he was very open to working with the camera. He definitely understands the camera, and as did all the actors. They were just lovely and wonderful and helped us immensely. Um, and... Uh, yeah, so that was the camera performance comes from that. And so it comes from them. A lot of it comes from them as people, you know, because they're interpreting it too. They're interpreting the scene along with everybody else. 
Um, so they had to come prepared and ready to go. I love that. Yeah. What is it like working with Tom Hanks? I mean, he's a legend. You know what I'm saying? He wrote the screenplay. You know, he's the star of Greyhound. You're working with him. What's it like? Well, wouldn't that be everyone's dream, you know, to, to, to do a film with someone like that. And, and, um, I was very much looking forward to it. And, and when, you know, when you're a DP on a movie like that and you've got an iconic actor or iconic director or someone who you're working with, it's like you, I think about, man, I, I really have to make sure I bring my A game. Not that I never don't, but it's like, you think about it. I cannot be lazy for one second. I cannot, you know, I've, I've got to stay with this movie and I've got to, you know, totally go completely go all in with it. Um, in the case of Tom, it was very funny because he, he never left the set. He walked on that set day one and walked off the last day. And, and he wasn't the type that would go run off to his, to his uh, trailer at all. Um, in fact, the very first day, the first setup, he came up and he said, hey, hey, Shelly, does your grip have one of those Apple boxes with a little pad on it? I said, yeah, yeah, sure. He said, well, do you think you could bring that up for me? Because I'll just sit here in the corner. I said, yeah, sure. So I went to the T-Grip, Bob Babbin. I said, hey, Bob, you, you want to make a friend for life? <laughs> Go bring Tom one of those Apple boxes with a pad on it for him. Wow. And so he did. And that, I don't, that Apple box didn't leave that set for, for a month. I mean, it was, I think it's a few shots with it in there. Because um, whenever we called cut, new setup, Tom would just go to the corner. He would just lean back on the set and close his eyes. And we'd be working with, he has his own stand-in that would help us. And so we'd be working with the stand-in. And uh, the stand-in would whisper to me, don't think for a minute that he's sleeping. He's listening. Is it? Oh, I know. <laughs> I know. That's awesome. And uh, so I would be, we'd be working. He'd be at the squawk box. And, and I would be working with the stand-in, John. And I would ask John, I said, oh, if we have Tom just look down, we'll get that eye. We'll get that interactive light in his eyes. You think he would do that for us? Then you hear Tom from the corner. What? What? What do you want me to do? Oh my God! <laughs> and he'd walk over. And I said, "Well, Tom, here's a situation. It's like if you if you look down for this, we'll get that glint in the eye for this moment." Yeah, 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 sure, 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 sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They go back and sit down. <laughs> so, oh wow! He, he, was, he was wonderful. He, he gave he gave us everything we could possibly want. He's extremely generous and and um, understands exactly. Uh, you know, what the camera needs and kind of what the camera crew needs. And it's very patient with us. And, and, uh, interestingly, he plays a song at the beginning of every day. He goes to the sound department and he brings a song to play over the loudspeakers. Really? Every day, every morning, there's a different song. And so all our songs were like Navy themed songs, pop songs or folk songs or whatever they were, but they all had some kind of Navy or ship theme. <laughs> Just to kind of like pump up the crew for the day? Just to get everyone ready for the day. Yep. Here no we way. We're, we're on the clock and here's the song. Here's the day's song. And every day, so he brought in 35 songs. You know, you have a different song that he personally did and gave to the to the people. And, oh, uh, wow. Yeah. And it got to the point where our console operators were, were even doing little light shows to them. They, they could improvise because we had sky panels up there which could do anything. So they could, so he, they could, you know, do all kinds of interesting light shows during our song. Oh, my God. Song. Yeah. So he was, he's all about creating a camaraderie and creating energy. You know, top that he wrote the script, he's producing it. His company was producing it. Sure. Um, you know, he's in it and, 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 uh, and he wants to, he wants that spirit of that creative spirit to be a big part of, of the filmmaking experience, you know? And, and so he sets the tone. Um, 
he leaves after 12 hours, whether you're, you better plan your day accordingly because he, he does insist on having his time off. And, and, and so you do yeah. you take that very seriously and, and uh, take care of him and treat him like a movie star. And, and, uh, and he'll, he's, he's very, very good. And what's interesting is when you, when you watch him, and I did a film like with Tommy Lee Jones. He was kind of a similar where you're watching them on the set and you're watching them perform and you swear they're not doing enough. There's, there's performances are so subtle that you're almost missing it to the naked eye with mm. cameras. They, he's so good. Those guys are so good at just putting the performance where the lens is. Yeah. And, and the subtlety and the layers are there. And, and then you see them in the movie and it's like, oh my God, you know, how did he do this? It's, it's just amazing. Um, and, uh, you know, he's That's interesting. Smart. Like you, yeah. you are wanting and expecting more when you're behind the camera because you're, you're well, active. You're like in the scene, but when you're watching it, it doesn't yeah. need to be that big. And who am I to judge? This is more of an this is observation from me. Cause I'm not, that's not even my, my table at all, but it's just, it's just, it's something I see with really good actors is that subtlety. You know, there's, there's that point where you almost lose the naked eye, but the lens sees it. Yeah. And they work on that fine line which is, you know, very, very fun to watch. You know, when you, you, you're talking about people who are masters of what they do. And, that, and so that's, that's beautiful to see someone yeah. who's that good work that way. You know? I love that. And our last question is from Instagram and it's not about Greyhound because although it's out now as of the time, well, it, it's out at the time anybody's listening to this interview <laughs> at this moment, it's not out. I got to see it. Thank you, Apple TV Plus, for giving me a screener to the film. Um, right. But this one's actually about Jurassic Park 3, okay. which is also a, a, a movie that you've lensed. Um, and it's from Jurassic Prince on Instagram. So clearly, Jurassic Park fan. I want to know, what shot are you most proud of in Jurassic Park 3? So you have to take us back to, <laughs> what, 2000? You probably yeah, shot that? 20 years ago. <laughs> 20 years ago. Hey, you know, I'm sure that the most the shot you're most proud of is probably still in your head somewhere, or maybe not. Uh, I can think of a sequence. Um, I mean, the Toronto, there's a, there's a sequence in that movie that's sort of the centerpiece where they go into this, they don't know they're inside this Pteranodon cage because it's all kind of fogged in until the fog clears and they realize where they are. And the Pteranodon picks one of them up and flies off and they have to kind of chase after it. And they're, they're in a, a very large canyon and then they end up, kind of chasing their way down to the bottom of the canyon where there's uh, some water down there. Um, that sequence I like a lot. Um, it's a, it's one that was difficult to shoot and very intricate and had its, uh, um, had many, many pieces. It was this kind of sequence that was in a, just a, a thousand pieces until the very end. And then it all kind of came together, which is, which feels good. We have a sequence that turns out like that. Some of the night stuff I'm very, very happy with. Um, uh, it's hard to, it's hard to, to picture one shot, you know, when you work with Joe Johnson, it's like, <laughs> it was a long time ago. It was, it was, it was a long time ago. And, and, you know, we did a lot of those kind of like Greyhound where we did a lot of the interiors, the day exteriors were on stage. Um, so we lit that jungle and, and, and all that to, to mimic daylight because they, they needed the control and they couldn't bring the Spinosaurus out anyplace else. So anytime you see the Spinosaurus, he's, he's, he's on stage. And, uh, so it was, uh, there was a lot going on. Like, like when you say Greyhound was sort of like one, one set, one thing that you sort of make a changing thing. Jurassic was the opposite of that. It was a uh, hundred things that you needed to, you know, 
make different things, I guess, you know, but, but it was, um, uh, fun to do. It was the first movie I did with Joe. It was kind of my first real big break in, in doing these types of movies. Yeah. Um, so similar kind of theme where you go all in and you, you give it everything you've got because you, you really want the movie to, to do well. And you want particularly your, your performance in the movie to be a good, you know, something that's, that's an identifier for the movie, hopefully, and, and serves the movie well um the storytelling side of it and, and uh, so that was definitely a huge opportunity to really to really do something yeah, so we didn't get a specific shot but we do appreciate the question of jurassic <laughs> i'll Prince. work on it you got i mean exactly it was i should have i should have warned you that was coming because i cannot believe that movie is 20 years ago that is yeah i know sick 20 years oh yeah. my god if well I think, if i think of one i'll send i'll send one to you <laughs> what isn't 20 yeah good what isn't 20 years old yeah. Not even a day old yet is Greyhound on Apple TV plus, which is available. Now you guys can head over to Apple TV plus. I mean, basically I think they're giving Apple TV plus away for free for anybody that bought uh, Apple devices. So you probably yeah. already have it. Even if you don't know you did, you probably already right. have the yeah. service. And if you don't, Greyhound is certainly one of many reasons to purchase it and uh, check it out for yourself. So Shelly Johnson, ASC, thank you so much for being on go creative show. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I want to thank Shelly Johnson, ASC, for coming on the show and talking about his work on Greyhound. And uh, I learned a lot, a lot of new techniques in there, a lot of new kind of philosophies and cinematography that we've never covered on the show. So that was exciting. And thank you, Shelly, for bringing that to us. I also want to thank our producer, Connor Crosby, for uh, making it all happen behind the scenes. You can find him at ignitionvisuals.com. And of course, Matt Russell for mixing and mastering and making the show sound so good. You can find him at gamestructure.com and on Twitter at gamestructure. Now, I want to encourage you to follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. We have all sorts of accounts there, all different kinds of content there for you. And subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. I want to thank our sponsors, MZ, Education for Creatives, and Post Lab, Stress-Free Collaboration in Final Cut Pro and Premiere. And of course, I want to thank all of you for checking out the show, sharing it, enjoying it, engaging with us. We absolutely love that. So keep it coming. We've got a lot of great Go Creative Show content on the way, and we have you to thank. So remember, go to gocreativeshow.com for all things Go Creative Show, and we will see you next week on another episode of Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. <laughs>